Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. Super Bowl has to be one of the most iconic annual events on the sporting calendar. Not only that, some of the numbers around it are just mind-boggling. For Super Bowl 50 in 2016, it was estimated the average viewer spent $82.16 US, splurging on everything from team apparel to food and parties. And the US National Retail Federation reported that Americans spent a grand total of US $15.3 billion on the Super Bowl in 2016, up $1 billion from 2015. It is big business and cities must bid to host the event. San Francisco was the winning bid for Super Bowl 50 in 2016 and Pat Gallagher played a key role in making that happen. First as chairman of the Bid Development Committee and then later as executive vice president marketing partnerships and communications for the Super Bowl 50 host committee. Later on in the show, we're going to go inside Super Bowl 50 as well as Pat's 30 plus years at the San Francisco Giants, including their income diversification strategies in setting up Giants Enterprises. Welcome to episode 49 of Inside Sponsorship. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and it's a great privilege to have you tuning into the show and giving up some of your valuable time to hear from our guests. Now, usually it is this part of the show where I give some shout outs, but I haven't heard from anyone since the last show. So no matter where you work, wherever in the world that may be, make sure you get in contact and say hi and let us know what you're up to and I'll make sure I give you a shout out in the next episode. So instead of some shout outs, I thought I'd grab a few minutes and introduce you to Eddie Fitzgibbon, the latest addition to the Sponsor team. Now Eddie is based in New York and he is our Vice President, Sales and Business Development. Here's Eddie. So Eddie, you've recently come on board at Sponsor. What's your role? Yes, yeah, so I'm the VP uh, Sales and Business Development North America, based in New York City, which I've been here for about two and a half years now. So you're based in New York City, but you're actually from Sponsor's hometown, which is Canberra, Australia. What's been your pathway to take you to New York? Well, I, I mean, I, I grew up in Canberra, but before that, I had a very, uh, some say, an interesting pathway to get here. So I was actually born in Hobart, Tasmania. Um, raised in Canberra, then moved to Sydney when I was about 23 for about five or six years and then moved to Dubai for five years and now I've been here for two and a half years. So, yeah, I don't know how a, a, a Tasmanian boy and someone who's uh, been grew up in Canberra ended up in you know, Dubai, New York, but it's been a really interesting journey. So, yeah, briefly on my employment, so... I started uh, probably my sports career in Canberra at uh, ACT Cricket, and I'll show a couple of the other questions. I'll be referencing cricket a lot because it's probably my main sport. And then I worked uh, in a whole different number of uh, places, so the Sydney World Masters Games, Special Olympics, Sydney Cricket and Sports Ground Trust in Sydney, and then I applied for a job with the International Cricket Council in Dubai, not really thinking much of it, thinking there's, you know, there's going to be a thousand others who are going to go for it. I don't really know that many people at the, uh, in, in international cricket. But I was fortunate enough to land that role, um, which was, yeah, it was a bit of a crazy time there. I had a really great five years in, in Dubai. Effectively, I was running the International Cricket Council's development events program. So if any of those of you who know cricket, the, there's, there's the four members, which are the main teams, Australia, England, India, for example, and then there are the, all the other 
teams outside of that. So Netherlands, Ireland, Afghanistan, for example. And I ran all of their pathway events from for, for them to qualify for the World Cup or the World 2020. So yeah, I was traveling all, all over the world doing events in Uganda, Samoa, Hong Kong, Ireland. So it was a pretty, pretty, pretty crazy time and good for me for, for five years. But after that, um, moved on to New York where my wife got a job moved over here from Dubai and since then I worked over here at the uh, Cricket All-Stars event, if any of those of you remember uh, Warney and Sutchin and Norka playing games in the baseball stadium, that was that was pretty much me doing that um, and I started my own consulting business and I worked with some sports agencies over here, a couple of English Premier League clubs, um, so yeah, that's pretty much a bit of a bit of a crazy kind of wild ride of it, but certainly enjoying New York and yeah, happy to be joining the sponsored team. I can see a lot of potential in the in the product over here. So yeah, really exciting time. I'm guessing one of the main or the first answer to this question is going to be cricket, cricket, and then more cricket. But what were your hobbies and sports when you were growing up? <laughs> yeah, well, you got the answer there. Pretty pretty much bang on. I remember definitely was cricket. I I remember watching the test matches and had my had my cricket bat in my hand and I played every single stroke back that I saw the players playing on the screen. So that was pretty much my life. Um, it was and that, and that was you know up through uh, primary school into secondary school. Also played Aussie rules, um, AFL. Anyone who's seen me, I'm sort of a pretty tall, slender, slender guy. So I was a I was a, I was a full forward for my school team. I enjoyed playing that until I broke broke my arm. Um, I have subsequently kind of moved on to some other hobbies out, outside of sport and outside of outside of cricket. But yeah, that was pretty much my uh, my childhood. Now, whenever we have uh, a feature guest on the show, we we always kick them off with some icebreakers. And so I thought it was only fair if I asked you the same ones. One of those icebreakers we ask a feature guest is if your house was on fire and apart from the obvious family members and pets and, and the boring stuff like laptops and phones, what's one thing that you would make sure you grabbed on the way out? Well, I was thinking about this and I didn't really want to didn't really want to go down this route, but it's I think it's, I've got to be honest, it would probably be my cricket bat that I got from the <laughs> Cricket All Stars event. Um, which is and look again. I worked for the ICC for five years, and I I'm, I don't regard myself as a cricket numpy, but obviously after this interview, I am. But this 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 cricket bat um, was signed by every single one of those players who played in that event, and you know from you know, Warney, Gilchrist, Hunter, uh, Sachin, Wazi Macram. So that would have to be it, sadly. Um, so I've obviously sign myself to cricket nuffism forever and a day now. And uh, as you left the house while it was on fire, would you be uh, practising your cover drives uh, on the way out of the house or is it in a nice case <laughs> hung up on the wall? No, it's not a nice case hung up on the wall. My wife would not allow that. <laughs> so it's, 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 it's stuck behind my golf clubs, which are getting covered in dust, which, is, which makes me sad every day. When I was in Dubai, I played golf three times a week and I've only been able to play twice in season to New York. So... My wife said she's going to throw out either the golf clubs or the or the cricket bat within the next year. So I've got oh. a I've got a whole firm on that somehow. Mm. Uh, what was your first ever job? It was actually in an 
alcohol store, like a boutique wine store. I was one of the guys who kind of packed the shelves with the wine. So I wasn't actually serving because I was underage at the time. Um, and then I graduated to be kind of the store manager at, uh, actually, some of you from Canberra, you might know, but, uh, Candamba Fine Wine. Yes. Uh, which was a, yeah, a bit of a boutique wine store rather than your kind of big box, you know, uh, you know yellow tail and, you know, penfold stuff. So, yeah, that was a yeah that was a that was a really interesting job. Really like that. Got sample some really interesting wines that I didn't really appreciate at the time, but I I, I certainly would now. You could have been Australia's Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> if you could be anybody else for the day, who would it be and why? Well, I'm going to stick on the theme of uh, of wine actually. So moving away from sport, so I would have to say Jantus Robinson. It was a wine critic, wine and wine writer based in the UK. Since moving to New York, I've discovered that my enjoyment and, and, and love of wine has been in me since pretty much I've worked at the store in Candamba and you know, I've travelled, I've been very fortunate to travel all over the world and to, and to Europe particularly a lot in, in my life and New York is one of the great wine cities of the world, it gets wine from obviously the States, but very close to Europe. You don't see a lot of Australian wine, unfortunately, but I've really gathered a real interest in, in wine. It's just fascinating to me, and I read her blog daily and uh, check out her recommendations. So I don't doubt she gets to take some of the most amazing wines in the world and gets to write about it. So to have that job for a day would be pretty, pretty amazing. Now, I heard a rumour that you always pay for the coffee or the wine. So if the listeners want to get in touch with you, meet you, have a chat, how can they do that? Yeah, so probably the best way is uh, through LinkedIn, Eddie Fitzgibbon. Um, also, Eddie at sponsor.net, anytime. Anyone wants to hit me, in, uh, hit me up in New York, whether it be Aussies, Aussies coming in or you know, uh, people from America coming into to the East Coast or New York or any New York listeners, which I hope there are, there are a few now, can, can hit me and I'm uh, more than happy to go and have a coffee with them or a, or a wine. I prefer wine over beer if, if anyone is buying for me and then we can uh, connect that way. Eddie, great to have you on board at Sponserve, and I know that Mark is very excited that he has someone in New York who is pretty much obliged to take him out for dinner and a drink when he's in town. So thanks for joining us. Cheers, Danny. Appreciate it. The last hurdle in the sponsorship sales process can often be the hardest, the converting from a strong opportunity to a yes. And this week, Mark has blogged about a great approach and tactic he has used and still does use at Sponserve, which helps him focus on getting a yes from the most probable prospects at the moment, but also ensures the top and the middle of the funnel are also looked after. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, you've been on some travels for the last couple of weeks. I think you've been back for maybe four or five days. So you'd be over the jet lag, you'd be out mowing the lawn, taking the kids bike riding. How's that all going? Mate, I, I landed straight into Christmas tree erection at home. Um, Real or fake Christmas tree? Fake. Correct answer. Yeah, no. Who wants to deal with that mess? Well, for our international listeners, yeah. Australia has the worst real live Christmas trees you've ever seen. They look dead set like they could do with a good feed. Yeah. Um, they do not look like Christmas trees that you get in the north, big 
thick, yeah, they beautiful. Don't. They don't smell nice. No, they yeah. smell terrible. No, well, so we, we quite often have fake ones. Yeah. No, no, I, was, I just spent some time in New York and the, 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 the smell that those real trees over there put out is amazing. Did right. you just spray yours with Glen 20? No. A bit of pine oak clean. Ours is, ours is shorter than me. So it's a very little tree. I don't know, even know where you get a tree that small. So in your travels, how was your trip? Great, mate. Very, very good. So we did uh, the UK. Yes. Um, London, uh, Ireland for a day, um, and over to New York. So we've got, we've got offices now in both those um, areas. So no, it was, a, it was a good trip. Very productive. Very different um, sort of stages of business in both. So very exciting. Clearly, we speak to a lot of uh, rights holders uh, in your travels, mm. both domestically here in Australia and, and internationally. But there's a common theme that a lot of people str- that you've noticed that a, a large number of people sort of struggle with, and it's that final hurdle, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, no, it's it's the we deal with some of the best salespeople that you can find in, in sponsorship around the world and, and we talk to them and I, I get the rare opportunity to have a beer with them every now and then and really get right inside their heads and figure out what they're doing. But the common theme is that the ones that are really good versus the ones that maybe are sort of still up and coming, still learning their craft or or perhaps not quite cut out for what, what they're doing is most people can create opportunities but the ones that can then turn those opportunities and proposals into closed deals on a regular long-term basis you know over over a longer career they're the ones that that are the the good the standouts and the ones that i take most of my learnings from and you've developed uh your own approach and and taken some some advice and some refinement from some other people Mm. uh around the world and and in your network and your mentors and all that sort of stuff but look personally and i'm guessing a lot of our listeners have on the on the right side of side at least they've I've read a lot. I've been on sales courses. I've I've worked in sales for a number of years in various industries. And one thing that I always struggle with is that somebody tells you to do something a certain way. They think it's a great way to do it, but sometimes it just doesn't feel like it's right for me. Yeah, no. I and you know what? I I, I had a bit of a, one of the sort of hard school school of hard knock groundings in sales when I, my first job was in a boiler room literally picking up the phone 100 calls a day pitching to yuck cold pitching to people right and and so you in those situations you, you either live or die because you don't get paid unless you make sales so it and you and you go through all those training sales training courses and things when they when you come into those organizations and <laughs> and you know some of it works some not but i found that if i, I did stuff a little bit differently um to, to what the other guys around the room were, I started to find success. And over time, working in that sort of sales environment, working in pitching to sign players as a player agent, working to sign sponsors, fundraising in, in charity and sport, um, it all comes back to, the, for me, my own method that, that I find success upon has, has been something that I've refined and refined even more in, in recent times by talking to a trusted mentor that, of our business actually um but there's some sort of key things that sit underneath it and then and then i've got my method which i lay over the top of it what are those key things that sit underneath it so so my my firm belief that i learned early on is that somebody can tell you a sales method and there's there's generally some gold in those so we had trent lation on a podcast recently he had some real good pieces of gold and anecdotes and things but all of that all that stuff, if you take it verbatim and you try to you try to mould to that, it's probably not going to work for you. So I, I've 
sort of unless you feel really comfortable doing what mm, they've said process driven exactly yep. right and so what i sort of have learned over time is that i've i've learned to identify what my own personality traits are and my own personal strengths are and then taken those different philosophies and things that i feel comfortable in and then and then molded that together with how i feel comfortable in acting them and so i've learned my personality traits that i sort of lean on are I've got strong relationship skills and I build build trusted relationships quite quickly and, and you know, genuinely. Um, I've got a dogged determination, sort of, you know, sometimes to my own detriment. Well, if you combine those first two, strong relationship skills and a dogged determination, sounds like stalking. Yeah, well, you know what? Sometimes that works in sales. <laughs> you're on it. Um, <laughs> you're on it. Um, I've got a thick skin. And then I was told once, and this is something I've added later, um, the best way to sell is to listen, mm. and so listening and learning from your from your target um, audience and and the prospect that you're sitting in front of. Yeah, add, add that to the mix, and then and then I've bought in the different types of sales techniques over the above of that. Mm. And, and that listening and learning has been a common theme in a lot of your your blogs and the chats that we've had with you on the show. So through that, you've developed what you've coined your top eight approach. Yeah. What's the go with the top eight? What's it mean? Well, in in, in Australian sport, right, that in, in most Aussie sports, the top eight is where you want to be when you're in the team. You, when, when you're playing in a team or you're in a team sport or you're supporting a team sport. On the sport. ladder. On the ladder. Yep. So you've got the top eight, right? And, and um, you know, people always ask, who's in the eight? And that's because, you know, the teams that are in the eight are the ones that make it to the finals. And so if you sort of flip that, and, and again, into a sales analogy, you want to be in the finals, so if you can get yourself in the finals, then it's going to come down to the quality of your product, your quality of presentation to see if you win the deal, right? And so I then sort of coined, repurposed that kind of analogy into sort of both in my fundraising and sponsorship roles that I've held over my career is always just trying to have a top eight. So the people that I think I can move sort of forward and then and then like a, and then the rest. Your focus. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, very good. So how does that... Day to day, practically, how does that work? What does it look like for you in your role? Yeah, so so I and and you know we I currently am, am trying to sort of utilise this in sponsor, right? So you know we have eight deals that we think we could close within the next month or, or near period of time, and, and this has got to be flexible for your type of sales environment. Eight deals may not be anywhere near enough, or it may be way too many. To or close you might have month. weekly KPIs. Yeah, daily. Yep. You know, if you're in a membership role, it might be half daily. Yep. Right. So you know the Who's in the top eight? Who's the who are the next eight deals that I think I'm going to close? And because obviously you're filling the pipe all the time. Now that pipe's filling, and you've got to then figure out ways of consistently closing. Otherwise, you've just got an, a pipe with holes everywhere. And so, for me, what I try and do is is figure out the top eight. Um, if they're in the eight, my challenge is is how to get those eight hot leads closing. So, what strategies are we using? What questions are we asking? How do we work with them to progress them? If if I ascertain that they're not actually in the eight anymore because they either say no, there's no deal here. Um, better still, they say yes, so they come out of the eight because they're a deal. Or they kind of you know slow down the process for whatever. I then will have like a bench. And then I, my, my challenge is then to figure out who on that bench can I then invest more time and effort into to move towards a closer sale. 
But the key point there is not just to have a top eight. You spoke about the top of the funnel and, and yep. putting people in. You're speaking about the lower end of the funnel, the skinny end with the top eight. Yep. You can't just automatically bring somebody into the top eight because there's a slot. You do have to be focusing on that middle part and, for yeah. want of a better phrase, curating them and yep. and developing that relationship so that they're ready to move into the top eight. Absolutely. And, that, and that's the, the reason I chose this method for me is that it, it, it helped me to focus on results, always moving opportunities forward no matter where they are in the funnel. Um, strategically, it forces conversations so I can understand how to move them forward because you're under pre- if you put someone in the eight, you're under pressure to actually close that deal, right? So you can't just leave them in the eight for months. Particularly if you're yeah. socialising it with other people in the business. Exactly right, it's like people on our board and things like that. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hello, if you're listening. Yeah. Um, and it also keeps my focus on still filling the pipeline so that there's always someone else available to come into the eight and also working passively on those opportunities. So still communicating, still sort of making sure they're percolating over. And then what it but what it also does is it balances your sales life between prospecting, strategy mm. and closing. Because if you, if you get bogged down in one of those three areas in a sales role, you're going to get really bored real quick and your results aren't going to flow through mm. at some point in time. So you've developed this over the years of working in sporting organisations and fundraising roles. Yep. Is it only for those types of roles, do you think? No, not at all. I, I think this is sort of a flexible type of um, approach. Actually, my, my cousin is the head of um, business development for a, a hot water manufacturer in Australia, for na- national sales manager for them. And um, and and he read my blog and messaged me saying, "Mate, this is exactly how we approach things, right?" And and on a big scale deal, you know, big development deals. And top one fifty. Well, they're talking about <laughs> hottest one hundred. Yeah, the hottest one hundred. That's right. You can use it in music. Um, so you know, but it might be a top six, or it might be a top ten, or you know, if you're talking about a a, a big time sales property, and you're working on, you know, an agency, and you've got a one or two big properties to sell it could be a top three Mm. but ultimately it's going to be driven top down from what your budgets are what your objectives and your your kpis are and you just distill down into that until it works for you right exactly right what's your success been like with it give us some stories yeah so look over a relatively short period so i probably started using this method about five years ago um and and it was built off a need so i was in a role where i got thrown into selling stuff that i wasn't actually that familiar with so been there done that yeah and so um but in that time since i've i've built this up so so across sponsorship across philanthropic fundraising in in charity and sport and in sort of product sales um i've indirectly assisted or directly assisted and helped raise over 55 million in in sales through using this method over a sort of a five-year period great chat like you said your cousin gave you some feedback i've had some feedback on the email on the social even on the phone with people that this blog really resonated with yeah so if listening to that chat it resonated with you also head along to sponsor.net head to the blog section where you can go through that uh slowly and read all of mark's thoughts and if you want to get in touch with mark and ask some questions about it just hit him up at mark at sponsor.net thanks for joining us absolutely mate who doesn't want to be in the eight it's the only way you can win the comp losers it's the only way you can win the comp (laughs) pat gallagher has had a career in sports for more than 40 years and it is impressive he spent 33 years at the san francisco giants which included the financing and building of a new stadium without municipal assistance and he was at the forefront of income diversification for sporting teams 
In time, he was invited to chair the development committee responsible for putting together the successful Super Bowl 50 bid and then later transitioned to executive vice president marketing, partnerships and communications for the Super Bowl 50 host committee. Following that, Pat and one of his colleagues, Stephanie Martin, who actually recommended Pat come on the show, wrote a book, Big Game, Bigger Impact, about how the Bay Area redefined the Super Bowl experience. Here's Pat. Pat Gallagher, welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you for asking. Now, we always kick off with a few easy icebreaker questions just to help the audience get to know you a little bit better. If you could be anyone else in the world for a day, who would you be and why? Well, it's, it's a great question. I, 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 you know, it's somebody who's unfortunately not around anymore, but, um, you know, uh, Walt Disney was always my hero. Um, you know, Disney, aside from, you know, beginning Disneyland and really starting several different industries, uh, you know, my, my feeling about him was that he had, you know, a vision and curiosity and certainly had guts and creativity, but he really created several different industries. And so I, I think that, you know, he's somebody, somebody's memory that I've looked up to what he accomplished. And, you know, I sort of, uh, I, even though I spent most of my career in the, you know, professional sports business, um, I sort of feel like I'm in the fun business. Uh, you know, it, it, nobody needs any of the things that I do, but people, my job is to try to figure out ways to make people want them. So, uh, so I, I'd say Walt Disney, if, if you could ask me if, if I could be anybody for a day. That's, uh, he's a fas- he would, was a fascinating human being. Now, Pat, second icebreaker question is, what was your first ever job? Well, actually, it was, uh, it was in the theme park business. I, I grew up in San Diego, California. And uh, when I was in high school in San Diego, I uh, got a job at uh, a, a theme park called SeaWorld that's in San Diego. They have marine animals. And I was, uh, I think I was 17 years old. Uh, I was in high school and I got a job. My first job was, the, 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 the title was called traffic controller. But, you know, what I did was I, you know, I swept up popcorn and cigarette butts. I uh, directed traffic. I uh, did crowd control at the various shows. But that was really my first job, uh, $1.60 an hour U.S., um, in 19, uh, 1967. So, um, and it, you know what, it was a great introduction to the business because the park was great. People were there to have fun. Um, it was a, it was the entertainment business. And, uh, you know, when you're 17 years old, you know, you're working with a lot of the other young people there. So it was a, it's really a great way to, to have your first job. Now, you eventually made your way to the San Francisco Giants. You spent 32 years there as the marketing and idea guy. How important do you think creativity is in sponsorship from a rights holder's perspective? Well, it's, I think it's, it's sort of everything. Figuring out creative ways to look at things, um, to create levels of interest. I mean, if you're really, as the, the director of marketing and the idea guy in, in, you know, for a major league baseball team, I mean, if you wanted to boil down what that job is all the way down to its basics, is that my job was to get butts into seats any way possible, uh, to, to sell tickets any way possible, to, to drum up interest for the team in any way possible. So I think you have to, you know, you have to find creative ways to do that. Um, I think that there has to be, um, you know, you, you have to have a level of fun. You also, 
have to keep the the customers, the people who come, in mind. Um, like I say, nobody needs any of this stuff. And so my job as the marketing guy was to f- figure out ways to make people want it and to to look for to look for ideas that were just sort of there that just needed to be amplified in some way. So I think creativity and uh, and and salesmanship, I guess, are maybe the two most important qualities um, that you can have in that kind of a job. Now, when you were at the Giants, there was talk that they may move, they may relocate. Now, teams moving like they do in American sport sometimes doesn't really happen a lot in other markets. What sort of challenges does that present in your partnerships and your sponsorships when those types of rumours happen? How do you go about managing them and having those conversations? Well, actually, the Giants um, almost moved twice. Uh, they moved in uh, 1959 or uh, 1958 from New York to San Francisco. That's when the Giants and Dodgers and baseball expanded. Um, you know, the, the, the furthest a team was at that time was St. Louis. So the Giants and Dodgers moved together out to the West Coast. And um, the Dodgers settled in Los Angeles and had great success. The Giants uh, settled in San Francisco and built – Candlestick Park, which was sort of a mistake from the start. It was cold and windy and sort of not very hospitable. So they had attendance problems pretty much from every year. If the team did well, the team would draw. But if you didn't do well, you couldn't draw. And the ballpark was in the coldest and windiest section of the city. So um, so the team almost moved to Toronto uh, in 1975. I joined them the year after when a local owner came in, bought the team. Get this. He bought the Giants in 1976 for $8 million. That was the total cost for the whole franchise. And he he bought them uh, to keep them from moving to Toronto. And then again in um, 1992, uh, after we had, we were always trying to figure out a way to get a new facility built, a new stadium built. And so after several sort of failed attempts, um, our owner was hemorrhaging money, and so he tried to move the team, actually sell the team, and move it to Tampa, St. Petersburg, Florida. And, you know, like in a lot of things, nothing really happens until there's a crisis. Um, you know, people were, uh, you know, went about sort of ignoring the Giants until they were about ready to leave town. Then there was a big hue and cry, and a lot of local interest, uh, some several local investors came together in 1992 to uh, to buy the team and keep them in San Francisco. And uh, that was the last time there was any any real threat because, you know, eventually, I mean, after all this, eventually we figured out a way to build a, a new stadium, which, you know, a lot of people consider to be one of the best stadiums in the major leagues. And uh, the Giants have been incredibly successful since then. So, you know, I mentioned that the, the franchise was purchased in 1976 for $8 million. Uh, the value of the Giants franchise now uh, is about $3 billion uh, with a B. So, you know, it's a, it's a, over that period of 40 years, a lot of things have happened, but it's, a, um, it's, a, it's safe to say it's a much different business uh, now than it was then. When you're having those conversations and local businesses are coming in and and considering investing and and, and saving or stopping a move, what about the existing sponsors? Do they get nervous? Are there some tough conversations that happen? 
Well, in 1976, when I joined them, uh, it wasn't really a problem because the Giants really didn't have very many sponsors. <laughs> a lot of them, you know, it, they had some on, you know, on radio and television. And we had some in the ballpark, but the but the, the, the sort of the the kind of sponsorship you would have then would be signage. Um, there really wasn't. It's amazing that really wasn't um, a lot of sponsorship and things like promotions and and other uh, other sorts of activations in those days. So it was it was really at a low ebb, and uh, there there I think a lot of people were relieved that the team was going to stay in San Francisco. And then I was brought in uh, to help figure out a way to find new ways to sell it in 1976. So it was really like, and I, it's almost like being back in the dark ages in a way. I mean, the most expensive ticket in those days was five dollars. Um, you know, you could buy a beer for a dollar. Um, our attendance was uh, for the whole season. This is you know 81 home games. Uh, was six hundred and I don't know six hundred and twenty eight thousand the year before. So it was you know there all there was was upside. You couldn't really get much worse. So uh, so it was kind of like a blank canvas that you had a chance to paint on, and that's what I had a chance to do. So you you had a little bit of a a, a blank canvas. You we see a lot of diversification of income streams, particularly in rights holders these days, where they they try and move away from just sponsorship and and ticketing. You probably one of the early pioneers of that type of approach when you created Giants Enterprises, which was a subsidiary for non-baseball uses and revenue streams. Did the Giants try and leverage people from those other streams into Giants fans and those traditional income streams like tickets and memberships and you know the, the, the small amounts of sponsorship that you had? Or was it really just about keeping it in a silo and generating new income streams? No, it's a great question because um, I had the opportunity to start Giants Enterprises after we built the new ballpark in uh, 1999. We, you know, after years of struggling, uh, local elections that we lost, we finally figured out a way to privately finance um, a new baseball park that was built uh, right on the bay in San Francisco. So we went from being a tenant in an old sort of city-run facility to now owning and operating our own. Uh, ballpark. So um, it was, and it was baseball only. It was, there was no multi-purpose, uh, it wasn't a multi-purpose facility. So um, Giants Enterprises really was, you, know, you kind of figured you play home games, you play 81 home games and there's, you know, 270 some other days uh, in the year that you could potentially do something. So Giants Enterprises was really inventing another business that you could not only utilize the facility, but utilize the relationships that we had, the, the sponsor relationships, the ticket holder relationships, certainly utilize the human relations and the manpower that we have to say, what other things can we apply these to that can generate revenue? So again, another blank canvas, there really was nothing kind of like that before. So, um, so I had the opportunity to start that in 2000 and, um, and it's been an incredible you know, a lot of a lot of organizations sort of emulate uh, what happened, and it's been very successful. But I was just told yesterday that actually Giants Enterprises, which is the non-baseball part of it, um, actually it's hard to believe, actually now is more profitable than the than the major league team is, um, which is it's pretty amazing. Um, but it's so it's not only leveraging relationships, but 
how do you how do you find creative ways to use a facility? Particularly, a lot of the things that we did in the ballpark, the ballpark was never designed to do. But in some cases, that's what makes it cool to to really do all of them. So we played football there. We had motocross. We did concerts. But the real bread and butter was private events um, and uh, other ways to uh, not only do events that were in the ballpark, but to do things that were in the marketplace. For example, we would sell, uh, we, we began to run several uh, road running races, marathons, um, cycling. Um, you know, we, it, we used the America's Cup when the America's Cup was in San Francisco several years ago. Um, Giants Enterprises uh, became a sort of a major supplier to the America's Cup uh, organizing committee to help sell um, to help sell not only sponsorship but hospitality, high end hospitality packages. So we just sort of invented a business, but it was like we had the expertise, we had the relationships. How else could we use them? That was really the task. You're an early pioneer of that type of approach. Was it? A case of a lot of resistance from traditional ways of running a baseball team, or was it a we've got a new stadium, let's make as as much use of it as possible? Pat, go and do your best work. <laughs> well, I think it was that. First of all, I think there was a benefit of not knowing any better. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I really, it was okay. What else can we do? So, and I think the other reason why we were motivated to do things was because we privately financed the ballpark. Um, we didn't rely on taxpayers or we had no government municipal support. We had to generate everything. So we were highly incentivized to figure out ways to maximize revenue, not only during the baseball season, but during the other times of the year. So um, it was a um, it, it was not just it wasn't like, well, what other kinds of things could we do? It was we have to earn additional revenue, profit making ventures. So we just remained focused, and we, you know, we, we had some successes. We also had some some failures. Um, none of them fatal, fortunately, but um, but some other things that um, that were we learned we learned how to how to make another business work, and the amount of uh, service and creativity that you need to do other events um, is you know it's pretty significant, and it. As it turned out, initially it was a it was a big burden for a lot of the staff people who were there, um, because now all of a sudden they had to you know they were asked to do other things, but um, but it became a not only an integral part of the business, but it's really helped round out and the, the quality of people that work at at, at the Giants and in and around them um, are much better because uh, there's so many different so many different types of things to do. Yeah, I think that's an interesting insight about the types of people that you attract and the skills that you then develop in an organisation when you start to look outside what your core business is. That's, I think that's very insightful. Now, Pat, in my research, I saw that you're involved in an activation at AT&T Park for Coca-Cola. Now, it certainly wasn't just some sort of pop-up or temporary activation. Can you tell us about that? Well, yeah, and again, you know, sort of necessity is the mother of invention here is that because we privately financed the ballpark, we had to raise the money. So in essence, the way to think about it is we had to raise, um, we had to raise about half the money to build the ballpark up front, and then we financed the rest, almost like we had to raise the down payment to buy a home, and we could finance the rest. So that meant that for things like naming rights, 
and the first tier of, of uh, sponsorships, we had to not only um, get more money than had ever been gotten before, but we had to get the money up front, which meant we had to there had to be a way to secure that unless you know unless something happened and the you know the ballpark wasn't built. So with Coca Cola as an example, and I don't know if any of your listeners have, have actually seen pictures of AT and T Park. Um, but it, it's kind of hard to miss. There's an 80, 80 foot, 80 foot uh, Coke bottle out in uh, left center field. It's sort of leaning over on its side, and it's uh, it's made out of uh, Alaskan cedar. And inside the the, the bottle um, has it has slides, almost like uh, almost like you can slide down a straw inside a bottle of a soft drink. And the bottle lights up and does special effects when you know when things happen during the game. And then uh, next to it is a is like a, a monster uh, old fashioned baseball glove, and a and a little ballpark inside so that um, kids during the game can you know who get antsy can go out there and run around in the ballpark. So we created this area in the ballpark that was like right you, know, you could be seen from every seat in the park, but it was uh, uh, and Coca Cola was willing to pay. Uh, substantially more than they would have otherwise, because it was an activation that really became part of the you know, part of the experience of being at the park. It wasn't like a sign. It wasn't like a tent. It wasn't a pop up at all. It was a. It was something that was actually part of the part of the ballpark. And it was you know at the time I have to say it was it was difficult to get the city of San Francisco to approve it because uh, you know they they have funny feelings about everything. One of them was that a lot of people said. They didn't think we should be able to serve Coca-Cola in the ballpark because it was bad for kids' teeth. So to, to, to build an 80-foot monument to, uh, you know, to soft drinks, um, you know, was sort of a tough putt for, uh, you know, for some of us. But we figured out a way to do it. The whole Coca-Cola fan lot has pretty much been a part of the fabric of the ballpark. And it's, uh, but it's an activation that is not a sponsorship, uh, not a traditional sponsorship. But it's placing. It's really a, a marketing partnership with a, you know, with a company who wants to place their product sort of right in the middle of everything. Yeah, I think it's a, a fantastic activation. I love it. We'll put some photos and some videos of uh, it in the show notes so the listeners can go and check that out. Now, Pat, let's change tracks a little bit. You chaired the development effort for the successful Super Bowl Fifty bid. I think we'd need a whole separate episode or even more to go through uh, that event in proper detail. But can you give us a sense of the enormity of, of putting a bid together like that, things like the key elements and the timeframes? Sure, you bet. I mean, it, first of all, um, we were competing for the 50th Super Bowl uh, that was held in 2016. So in bidding for that, um, the way the NFL does these these sort of auctions, if you will, is they get communities to bid against one, of that, one another for the rights uh, to do it. So we actually, the only Super Bowl that had been held in San Francisco uh, prior was 30 years before, uh, and the big the big holdback was there was never a, a decent place to play. Candlestick Park never would be considered to have a Super Bowl because it was cold and windy and usually in a state of disrepair. The Oakland Coliseum, where the Raiders and the A's played, really wasn't big enough and wasn't, you know, fancy enough, if you will. So, uh, but the commissioner of the NFL at the time, Pete Rozelle, 
wanted to find a way to have a game in San Francisco. So, and this was in 1985, they put together a plan and they held it at Stanford Stadium, which had a capacity at the time of about 80,000. Um, but, the, but the Super Bowl had never come back. There'd been efforts before. So the combination of the 49ers uh, breaking ground with a new stadium down in Santa Clara, and then us putting together a plan to, uh, to hopefully sell the NFL on the idea of bringing the, the game. That's really what did the trick. And, and you know, if you wanted to boil down our sales pitch, it was pretty simple. We had to raise all the money privately. There was no municipal funds or hotel tax or anything like that to be involved. We just said to the NFL, we put together a plan that said, if you're going to celebrate 50 years of Super Bowls with all the history, tradition, and everything, but more importantly, you're going to look ahead to the next 50 years. You should consider doing it here in what a lot of people around the world consider to be the center of invention and innovation with Silicon Valley and a brand new football stadium. So that proved to be a winning, sort of a winning sales pitch. And we did that, um, you know, we, we, we bid on it in uh, 2013 and actually held the game in, uh, 2000, in February of 2016. A lot of people working in sponsorship, particularly on the rights holders side, do so in small teams. It might just be one person or even two or three. What did the team responsible for sponsorships of Super Bowl 50 look like? Well, it was actually actually pretty small. I mean, it was uh, there really. Uh, it was me. I was the at the time. I helped put the bid together, and then I became the executive vice president of marketing partnerships and communication. So my job really was to, to raise the money that we needed and then figure out a way to market it and sell it. And so that was me. Um, we, we had a CEO, Keith Bruce, who we, you know, who did some of the selling. And then I, I brought on a, a sales director from the 49ers who helped, but there's three of us. We had a, a person who helped us uh, in developing the, the specific, you know, all the contractual relationships with different partners and then um, helped us in all the activations. So it was a really, really small team who really worked day and night. Um, and so it was a, it was a, I have to say, it's almost like a startup operation where you, you know, you have to put, put together a little company to do this. You operate it and then you disband after it's over with. So, uh, but we had to raise, um, we had to raise a little over $50 million in a fairly short period of time. And so the way we did it, 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 also we were competing. If you look at it, we were competing against the NFL for, you know, sponsors. I mean, we, we couldn't approach it the same way at all. So um, we, I, I characterized them as more partnerships where our selling point to companies to get involved was not so much what it was going to do for their brand, but what it was going to do collectively, if we could get sort of the big guys in the Bay Area to step up and come together, we could bring the Super Bowl to the Bay Area, which was something that nobody individually could do. So it was a, it was a much different type of a sale. And I say, you know, partnerships, I, I'd like to say that the companies don't, don't expect the same sort of return on investment that they would with a, with a sort of a sponsorship where they there's all kinds of metrics where you can you know evaluate sponsorships but a partnership like this the only way we could have brought the super bowl to the san francisco bay area was to get the big companies to step up 
And we were asking at the time uh, before the bid, we were asking for $2 million for a company. You know, for a company that's in the billions, $2 million is, frankly, it's sort of like a rounding error. Um, but you have to sell, you have to sell it in a different way in that you have to figure out a way to be very succinct with your ask. And in our case, we had to go right to the top of the organization. We didn't have time or the energy to go through traditional channels where we would try to approach, you know, some sort of middle management and then try to sell it up. We had to go right to the top and that actually proved to be a successful strategy. Well, well, part you just touched on it. Then part of your approach uh, in your bid was to craft an actual partnership strategy. What did it really look like? How much did you target? Was it two million per company? Was there a total target? And what companies did you identify and ultimately bring on as partners? Well, it was interesting that so if you kind of look at the timeline, we found out in November of two thousand and twelve that we would be able to bid on a Super Bowl. So there was a small uh, bid committee. Um, I joined it as a volunteer. Um, the mayor of San Francisco and the owner of the 49ers um, put together, asked a few of us if we would get together and put this bid together. So it was in November of uh, 2012, and the bid had to be submitted in April of 2013. So only a few months. And the NFL had a 150-page request for proposal that we went through. And so we had to do it quickly. We assembled a small team of people, again, all volunteers. And um, we realized, we, we thought that in order to impress the, the NFL, we needed to have commitments for somewhere between 25 and $30 million before we went into the bid. Now, what that meant was we didn't necessarily have to have signed contracts, but we had to have uh, companies who raised their hand and said, okay, we're with you uh, if you do this. And so in a period of, you know, three or four months, we were able to assemble about $30 million in pledges, if you will, uh, that if we were successful in landing the Super Bowl, then we could not only turn those into contracts, but then go and get more contracts that we needed to have. So it was a sort of a high wire act, I guess, at, at the time. But, you know, what I learned uh, through this is sometimes when you're going after a big prize, and you have a limited amount of time to do it, um, you can convince people of the urgency of the need to do that. And that's really what happened. The host committee advisory board was made up of high-profile tech executives, yet the Super Bowl host committee sponsorship rules stipulate that there can be no crossovers within the same industry. And this ultimately led you to bringing on Apple as a sponsor why would Apple want to sponsor the Super Bowl host committee? What were their objectives in that? You know, it is a great question. Actually, in, in approaching this, so first of all, when you realize this, um, you know, and I agreed to take this on, I, first of all, I said, oh, my God, you know, we can't compete with any of the NFL sponsors. Um, we certainly, um, we don't really have, um, we don't really, what do we have to sell? So, I mean, I could go through that of how we created sort of areas of activation, but my sales pitch to these, to the CEOs of these companies, where I was asking for a pledge of $2 million each was um, sort of trust me. I mean, the only way for us to get this um, is to, is, is to show that we have the wherewithal to raise 25 to $30 million 
we will take care of you with certain types of elements. But it was a very, it, there was not a lot of, um, and it sounds crazy now, but it was not a lot of, um, uh, you know, bells and whistles and tickets and all the other things that we always put in sponsorships. I say the first company that signed up was actually was Google. And I was able, able to get through to the chief business officer at the time. And on a 15 minute phone call, I had one sheet of paper that I, that I emailed to him. He looked at it. It had bullet points in it. And I said, the only way we're going to get the Super Bowl is to, is to get pledges for $30 million and we've got to do it in four months. Um, would you pledge us, um, a minimum of $2 million? And then I said, is there anything else you can do to help us? So it's interesting. He said, yeah, we'll do that. And then he said, you know, there's maybe there's some other things we could do. For example, they could use Google technology to help us develop uh, apps, or they have 150 buses that could, that they said, could, would those be valuable to you for transportation? So Google was the first. In a few days later, Apple came through. And it was really interesting. Apple said, um, unlike any other sponsor or any other partner, they said they were doing it for the good of the Bay Area. So they committed $2 million. In addition to that, they committed uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in value and time in equipment um, that we could use to help power our host committee. And not only did they want, did not want any recognition, they did not allow us to use their brand, um, which you kind of say, well, why the heck would a company do that? And the best way I can describe it is they, 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 they knew that it was important to do something where most of their employees live and work. And if you remember, this was the company that one time um, had the had the uh, sort of the sales the slogan, uh, "Think different." And in this case, they certainly think different. So, what it wound up happening is having Google and Apple as two companies who committed to start going and talking to other company. This was like having a, a set of dominoes where the first two dominoes started to fall, and a lot of companies who who got involved later. Um, they got involved, but they said, geez, you know, Google and Apple don't do anything like this. If, if they're in, involved, then we have to be involved in it. So the, the list of companies that came, you know, the Chevrons and Verizon and Intuit and Intel, there's a whole list of companies that came after that. But uh, Google and Apple were important because they gave people faith that this thing was actually going to happen. And they obviously, uh, they were very well respected in the Bay Area. Fascinating. Pat, was there anything that was unique about the partnership strategy in terms of what you executed and implemented? Anything that was new and exciting or was it more about implementing what was pretty much tried and tested in previous Super Bowls and that you knew worked? Well, you know, it, it, the, the, the amount of information that we got from previous host committees, frankly, was pretty sort of anecdotal. Um, not much. We didn't really have much of a playbook, um, but we sat down and said, okay, let's do, let's do a sort of a broad brush reasons why we're doing this, why it's important, and also make a claim. You know, the Bay Area, there's 7 million people that live in the nine Bay Area counties, but you have the cities of San Francisco and San Jose that are like 45 miles apart. Oakland is across the Bay, so it's a big region. That frankly, they don't do a lot of things together. They don't, there's no, there's no, um, you know, there's not a lot of cohesion in that area. So we had to figure out a way to get the region together. So we boiled it down to a couple things. One of them was 
And this turned out to be, initially it was, we thought it was risky, but it worked well. As we, we said, we would take 25% of all the money that we raised from corporations and we would devote it to charity. Um, nobody had ever done that before. Um, so, so a quarter out of every dollar would devote, be devoted to uh, charitable causes. Um, and then um, we, we came up with three prongs. We said this would be the most giving Super Bowl ever, which meant we would raise more money and give it away to charities than had ever been done before. It would be the most shared Super Bowl, which meant that we would create experiences that in a digital age people could share um, could share with others. And then there'd be the most participation of, of anybody. We'd find ways to get and there's only 70,000 people who can actually go to the game. So we find ways for anybody in the market who wanted to come. We created big activations that started um, well before the Super Bowl that gave people a chance to participate and be a part of it, even if they weren't going to the game. So I think that was that, those were sort of the sort of the hot buttons that companies said that they were going to be involved in something that not only was good to you know for, to bring the game here. But it was something that people in the Bay Area could, who could participate in. And, you know, the stuff that we were able to do from an activation standpoint and, and bring our partners along to help activate uh, was significant. I mean, just one, just one example is we've got the 49ers uh, who have five uh, Super Bowl trophies, five Lombardi trophies, and the Raiders who have three who gave us their trophies. They loaned them to us. And we created a tour that started four months before the Super Bowl, and we took it all the way around Northern California. It was like a whistle stop tour where you could you could go up and get close and get your picture taken with the you know with Lombardi trophies. A lot of people had never seen one, had never even dreamt to get close to it. So four months ahead of time, we began to um, we began to begin activating, and then we created this thing in San Francisco called Super Bowl City which opened up nine days prior to the Super Bowl. And over a million people came during the nine days to come and see Super Bowl City. That really had never been done before in the way that we did it. So those are just a couple of examples, plus the charitable piece of it um, really sort of became the glue that sort of made people kind of stand up and take notice that this was going to be really different. We said we, said we were going to redefine how a community presents the Super Bowl. And sort of when you say that, when you sort of have the audacity to say something like that, then you have to figure out a way to deliver. And fortunately, fortunately, it all worked out. I mean, uh, you know, I have to say that, you know, you, you think of the motivators. I mean, fear, fear is an incredible motivator sometimes. And not that, not, not that we were running scared, but we made a big claim and then we had to live up to it. And, we had a lot of influential people in the Bay Area who had sort of signed on as advisors, some real interesting people from all walks of life who um, who kind of put their name on this. So we really couldn't let them down either. There was certainly some, uh, some, some lofty and ambitious goals. Are there many sponsorships that are just for one Super Bowl or are there multi-year deals which you as a, a new host committee for a separate Super Bowl has to consider and incorporate? Or is it really just a blank slate, a Super Bowl is finished, we start a game, the new host committee takes it over? Well, the best way to describe it is the NFL, who, you know, they have the rights, they have the rights to the marks, they have 
uh, broadcast rights, whatever, they definitely have multi-year agreements on a variety of things. But since a, a host committee um, is assembled to for one specific game, um, there are no, you know, there's no multi-year agreements uh, because the next time the Bay Area would have the opportunity to bring a Super Bowl might be, you know, five, six, ten years away. I mean, the, the one, the previous one before that, you know, was 30 years ago. So, um, no, there's there's no sort of continuity. And I have to say, I think that the National Football League, um, you know, they don't they're, they're, they keep this stuff pretty close to the vest. But I think that they were, are considering, you know, sort of a new model for doing this because. Um, you know, if all you're trying to do is raise more money to deliver it, it becomes more costly every year and the restrictions get greater, meaning that, you know, they, they, they're, they've got an active sponsorship effort. Um, you know, you have to give a host committee uh, sort of enough room to generate the money necessary. You know, we wound up raising over $50 million and then gave away uh, more than 25% of that away to charity. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a significant uh, nut uh, with no public assistance. It was all uh, privately raised. So, the, You touched on it before when you spoke about, you mentioned broadcasting. Now, the NFL doesn't forbid the broadcaster Fox from selling Super Bowl ads to non-sponsors, and clearly it's a lucrative proposition because the Super Bowl generates about US $2.59 billion in ad sales in pretty much the last 10 years. Many non-sponsors use ads to ambush official sponsors of the Super Bowl. Is, this, is that something that a host committee or sponsors are concerned about or is it just part of the environment? I'm particularly interested in whether there were any examples where you might have been speaking to a potential sponsor uh, and who's actively engaged in considering sponsoring Super Bowl 50 who then just said, well, you know what, we'll just buy some ads instead of sponsorship and then also have the cost of activation. It's a great question because it actually happened. I mean, as a host committee, one of our obligations to the National Football League was to create a clean zone in and around the you know defined areas. So in and around San Francisco, in and around the stadium, these would be zones that we would have to get the municipalities to agree to not sell uh, signage, not sell identification to uh, to sponsors that were competitive in the NFL. So you think about the implications of that. Um, but aside, outside those areas, there were, uh, you know, there certainly were companies who were not affiliated who had their own activations. Um, you know, companies, I mean, a, a, a perfect example was Verizon, a telecommunications company, was an NFL, is an NFL sponsor. And we got them involved in a big way um, in helping to produce Super Bowl City. But um, but AT and T, who is a competing sponsor, couldn't get involved. But they sort of they did ambush um, in, in a way because AT and T Park, which is my my former uh, my former friends at the Giants. I mean, I actually sold the deal to uh, Pacific Telesis and that became AT and T. They actually did a gigantic concert, which was during Super Bowl week, um, because they were able to do it, and we had no involvement in it. And, you know, companies like Salesforce, uh, Salesforce is one of the leading companies in San Francisco because of the NFL and our, uh, the host committee's relationship with SAP, we were unable to sell anything to Salesforce and they were willing to buy. We just couldn't sell. So it was, there were some, I'd say some frustrations 
there were some um, times that uh, the money that we probably could have gone to get that we were prevented from getting because of competitive um, conflict situations. Uh, and also the broadcasters, the broadcasters were pretty much free to go sell to anybody they wanted. Um, so uh, we were sort of competing with them. One really interesting one was the software category. Pepsi is an NFL sponsor. But because of the, it's really interesting, because of the attitude in San Francisco about soft drinks, um, you know, there, there's politically in San Francisco, you know, soft drinks are a target. I mean, they, they politically, they try to tax soft drinks to help take care of things like tooth decay and other health problems. So uh, not only Pepsi would not, Pepsi would not come and help, help us, the host committee. The only time that you saw Pepsi uh, around the Super Bowl was on television or as part of the halftime show. They were they were in, invisible with anything in the Bay Area because they didn't want to compete. They, they didn't want to, to sort of rise the, uh, I guess, the, the scrutiny of the local political establishment. So that was something that we didn't really understand initially. Um, we figured that they would be heavily involved, and Pepsi wound up doing nothing with us and nothing locally. It all was on television. Plenty of great stories there, Pat, and I'm assuming you're going to bring a lot of those together in a book that you have coming out about the Super Bowl 50 host committee. Let's give it a plug. What is it called? What yeah, can Daniel, people expect? Thanks, thanks for mentioning my book. <laughs> you know, at the end of it, at the end of the whole thing, uh, my colleague Stephanie Martin, who was our communications director, um, she said, "Hey, you know, you should you should write a book about this." And I kind of said, "Man." Eh. So, but she said, well, what if we do it together? So we started writing, and sure as heck, we found a publisher. And so last spring, we published the book. Uh, they published a book. It's on Amazon. It's called Big Game, Bigger Impact. And it's the story of really how the host committee came together to make this happen. And it's, not, it's really not about football at all. It's about, um, it's about a startup culture. It's about leadership. Uh, cooperation. Um, and it's not us banging our chest to talk about how great we were. We talked about some of the things we, we had to face and some of the things we didn't do well. But um, we thought it was a good case study and it was worth it. And um, and so far it's been getting terrific reviews. And actually they it's pretty, you know, it's on, it's on, you can buy it in a book, you can buy it um, on Kindle. And a few months ago they asked me to actually narrate the whole book so it took me a month, and I narrated the whole book. So if you want to listen to me talk about it for five hours, you can get it on Amazon Audible. It's like I say, it's good for insomnia, you know. Uh, but it's a uh, anyway. I, I think it's it's been very well received, and I think it tells the story that really hasn't been told before of what it takes to actually put on a mega event like this. And uh, we were happy to do it. Excellent, and we will definitely put a link to uh, the, where you can buy that book on Amazon in the show notes so the listeners can go and check it out. Pat, fantastic chat. If people want to get in touch with you, connect on social, what can they do? Well, I'm on LinkedIn, you know, Patrick, Pat Gallagher, Patrick J. Gallagher. Um, they can So they can get me that way. Um, they can get me on Twitter. Um, it's at pgalla, P-G-A-L-L-A. Um, you know, my email address is PJ Gallagher SF is in San Francisco at gmail.com. I don't think I'm going to give my cell phone number, but, <laughs> um, 
But if people, if people want to reach me that way, I, I'm happy to talk to anybody about it. And right now, we're spending a lot of time talking to college and universities, sports marketing programs who are, are using this as a case study. So um, anyway, I'm happy to talk to anyone about it. Outstanding. Pat Gallagher, thank you so much for taking us inside sponsorship at the Giants and Super Bowl 50. Great. Thank you very much. I love that chat with Pat. Some great stories and some fantastic insights. And I think you should add Pat and Stephanie's book to your Christmas list. And if you've been good this year, well, you just never know. Head along to sponserve.net for a link to the book and also those connection details that Pat spoke about. That's about all we have time for in episode 49. Yes, 49. So that means the next episode, due out just before Christmas, will be episode 50. So it's a big milestone and you could be part of it by getting yourself a shout out on that show if you drop me a line before then. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. Don't forget you can follow Sponserve on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to Sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.